0: The U.S. Supreme Court ruled on a case called Plessy v. Ferguson. Separate but equal was now okay. This meant states could keep blacks and whites apart by law in schools, restaurants, bathrooms, and more.
1: That's St. Louis author Amanda Doyle. She's reading from a new book on civil rights written for children.
2: It's called Standing Up for Civil Rights in St. Louis, and it challenges kids to become activists. And you know, Willis, remember when we talked to Doyle and her co-author, it was really a challenge for them too, just putting it together.
1: It's true, they really had to work to condense more than 150 years of history into 76 pages, including dozens of large photos and illustrations. And they had to work to make it understandable and meaningful
2: to a fifth grader. I'm Willis Ryder Arnold. And I'm Nancy Fowler. And this is cut and paste st louis public radio's arts and culture podcast so figuring
1: out what to put in and what to leave out was one of the biggest challenges for doyle and co-author melanie adams adams has a phd in educational leadership and policy and was until recently with the missouri history museum
2: and they wrote this in connection with the museum it starts with slavery and it moves through the civil war and jim crow and the 1960s civil rights movement and it ends with the death of Michael Brown and the protest in Ferguson. But its message doesn't stop there.
1: Doyle and Adams recently joined us in our studios Doyle in person, and Adams on the phone from Minneapolis, where she now lives. We begin by asking them how this project got started.
0: There is an exhibit currently up at the Missouri History Museum called St. Louis Number One in Civil Rights. The book is um, a companion piece to that exhibit aimed at young visitors, but it also can stand alone as a history of civil rights in St. Louis. Fortunately, um, Melanie got sort of assigned, I hope she thinks it was a good idea, assigned to, to be my collaborator on this, which was really great because Melanie and I have actually known each other for quite a while. I thought it was wonderful. Um, of course, you're looking for all of the obvious
3: things, um, someone who could write a children's book, but also someone who could be really authentic around this topic. I knew that she would bring a passion and an authenticity to the work that would make it successful.
2: So when you both embarked on this project, what sort of um, gaps are there in what children are learning today and misconceptions that they might be learning that this book can address? In a lot of history textbooks,
3: they go with the famous names. You have MLK, you have Harriet Tubman, you have Rosa Parks. And the thing that I really like about this book is it talks about the everyday people who made a difference. So they're big names in our life because we know St. Louis history, but it's great for them to see people like Frankie Muse Freeman, Percy Green, um, Norman Say, really individuals that were just like them.
0: I think we worked well as a team because I would Come up with what I thought were discoveries. I mean, they were discoveries for me. Um, and we had a lot of back and forth where I would write something saying, calling it, you know, a forgotten moment or something like that. And Melanie would correctly point out, well, not for everyone, you know, like there is an African American community here, a legacy of civil rights activism here. So what you're calling forgotten may be more accurately described as overlooked. So just kind of having that perspective sure. um, to, to bring to a young audience was exciting.
1: I'm really curious about that because you're both bringing these different perspectives. How did you kind of bring those together in one book?
0: (laughs) Technology is amazing. Let's start with that. And the fact that we're in different rooms right now talking is a testament (laughs) to that. I sort of came from the I'm going to write the narrative and string it together point of view. Melanie had a lot of the really important context and content, so we... um, just sort of dumped it all into one working document, worked back and forth together, um, edited each other's stuff. And Melanie's right. We have at least five other books <laughs> with the material <laughs> left on the cutting room floor. But we just worked as a team that way. And I think, again, having that relationship that we had prior to starting on this let us know we could trust each other to do that.
2: You know, you were talking about a lot of things in the book are forgotten slash overlooked, depending on your, your point of view. But are a lot of these things things that children are not
0: learning in school about St. Louis? history? There's a lot to cover in school. We test the heck out of these kids all the time about everything. And so it's a lot of really fast moving through big, important names. They know MLK, they know Rosa Parks, but there's not a huge focus on the local context. What I liked about this book and about this exhibit that it goes with is the ability to connect things they do see every day with this history. So we still have things in St. Louis named for many of these people. There are sites you can visit, obviously, that are associated with them. We have many living St. Louisans who are directly connected to civil rights activism. And we think of it, of course, as the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. But since there has been a Missouri, and even before, there has been civil rights activism here. Melanie, would you like to add
2: anything to that?
3: Yeah, I also think it's really important um, because the Missouri History Museum has a program called Teens Make History, where teens research, write, and perform plays. And one of their first plays they did about 11 years ago were on the lunch counter sit-ins at Sticks Bear Fuller. And what they said to us was, we didn't know these happened here. These happened down south. And we're we're like, well, we are down south. (laughs) Maybe not down, but we're definitely south. They knew nothing about the civil rights movement that was happening in St. Louis in the 40s.
1: And you actually brought up earlier, I believe it was you, Melanie, uh, Frankie Freeman and Percy Green as people that were everyday people that were involved in this, that weren't the big names that we often think of as associated with the civil rights era of the 50s and 60s. Can you give us just a kind of overall glimpse at what one of those people did?
3: I will go with Frankie Muse Freeman. You
1: know, you don't want to give her one claim to fame, but
3: you know, she's had a long storied history around issues of civil rights. But really, I think of her as the lawyer in the Shelley V Kramer lawsuit. And I think one of the nice things about this book is it's really arranged around the key lawsuits related to civil rights that came out of St. Louis. But Shelley V. Kramer essentially gave African Americans the right to um, live where they wanted to live. And the issue was that the house that they were trying to move into had a covenant on it. And so we explain a little bit about this in the book, but the covenant essentially said that the white owners of the house could not sell to people who were not white. Ms. Freeman actually brought a lawsuit against them and was able to say that the covenants were not enforceable. But the interesting thing is, I think if you were to look back at a lot of probably the older houses in St. Louis, they probably still have the covenants. That doesn't mean they're enforcing them or that they're legally enforceable. But a lot of these older houses that you look at, you know, built in the early 1900s, have these racially restricted covenants on them.
0: And the, the Shelley's house still stands today. It's there. It's a place you can go visit. I love going by there because it, it does. It looks like a million other houses that are anywhere in the city. And to see that and just contemplate the movement that started there is, is pretty awe-inspiring.
2: Amanda, you have um, the book with you. Um, I do. I wonder if we could ask you to read something of your choice.
0: I thought I would read a section. Um, One of the most exciting parts to write was the part about the struggle for equal access to education in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, we both really liked because Melanie has a huge background in this area, but also because it's something kids can relate to. They're all in school at the age that this book is aimed at. They all have an experience of what that means. And as Melanie said, if you thought you couldn't go to school with someone you currently go to school with, it would just seem shocking to you. So... We talked a bit about the creation of Sumner High School, which is a huge um, focus of pride in the African American community even today, and a bit about the history of um, Black History Month, how it had its roots in St. Louis. And then we connect it to the larger picture. So, this is the end of the education chapter. Between Sumner's founding and its move to its current location, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on a case called Plessy versus Ferguson. Separate but equal was now okay. This meant states could keep blacks and whites apart by law in schools, restaurants, bathrooms, and more. The black option just had to be seen as equal to the white one. But separate was never truly equal. White people were always taken care of first, and black people got what was left. The NAACP fought back, and we've defined what that is. Its lawyers filed lawsuits against the equal part of the promise of separate but equal. The NAACP figured that school and state leaders wouldn't want to spend the money to build truly equal schools for African Americans and that they'd just let black students into the white schools instead. The group's efforts got national attention with the second important civil rights lawsuit from St. Louis to make it to the Supreme Court, Gaines versus Canada. So then this sets up a section where we talk about the Supreme Court case that eventually came out of here. But again, just putting it in these terms that are honest but... Very um, easy for a kid to understand. So separate but equal was not. White people got the first shot. Black people got what was left. I think kids would say, OK, I see how that's unfair. And yeah, I get what you're saying.
3: It's funny because I was thinking when Amanda picked that passage, I'm like, that's what I would have
0: picked. <laughs> that's um, funny. We did not discuss. <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. We did not. Um, but I also love you know, what she alluded to in terms of um, the uh, start of Black History Month, how that started in St. Louis and the work around that. And I think that really, again, students understand education. They don't understand housing because they haven't bought a house or they <laughs> may not understand transportation, but they understand the school. And so it always makes me think that kids understand when they go into a different school and the other school looks different or better than theirs. So they can kind of make that connection of what it was like to get the hand-me-down books or the hand-me-down gym equipment or whatever, the hand-me-down school, <laughs> whatever the case may be. And so I think if students kind of at least can make those connections, those are things that they can carry forward in their life to remember about what does it mean to be treated equal, to be treated the same. Um to really feel valued at the end of the day
2: you know a lot of the material in the book is disturbing because it's about you know a disturbing past you know not only slavery but I remember even a part of that African Americans uh, could not ride inside the streetcar but had to just hang on from the sides and really stood to to possibly fall and be trampled by a horse how do you present you know often horrific material, in a way that's appropriate for children, yet still truthful. And how do you make those kinds of decisions? Amanda, if you could start.
0: It is um, it is a challenge. I think kids, number one, are the ultimate sort of justice people. They have a very innate sense of right and wrong. So number one, they're willing to receive that information. It's, it's something they can understand. There are, I mean, we allude to people leaving the South for many reasons, including horrible violence, you know. Um, I think you just have to be honest and use direct language that is not unnecessarily explicit and also not use kind of the shorthand that we do as adults. You know, we say um, patterns of segregation or in that I was thinking of that case, people leaving the South, you know, we say because of uh, lynching. Well, without going into graphic detail about what lynching is, you can say a daily threat of physical violence. Kids can understand that, you know. So I think it's important not to kind of couch it but also not to dwell on the more what could be disturbing sort of aspects for it, just to factually state it and move on. Do you use the word lynching in the book and then explain what that is, or do you just avoid that word? Actually, that word we just avoided and just made it it because because it wasn't also just lynching. There were other threats as well. So we kind of explained it in a way that set that in the context. And we don't want to say that was, you know— the main driver there were also incredible economic disparities a lack of opportunity so so presenting all those things with um, the relative weight that they needed and i think
3: i'd have to push back a little bit on the adjective disturbing because i think <laughs> as adults we understand kind of the heaviness of the content we see it from a very different lens than a 10 year old who can't even imagine not being able to go to school with this friend right so in his mind he doesn't bring the same kind of heaviness and the visual images that we have. But really, our goal for the book was really more uplift. And I know, you know, one of the things I fought from day one was African-American advocacy
0: yes, and okay.
3: showing about how African-Americans were active participants in the civil rights movement. It was not something done to them or for them was really important. And I remember us arguing about the word advocate because we're like, they're fourth graders. Are they going to, you know, we got it in the book. We described what it was, but that was really important. We don't want children of any color, to read the book and feel hopeless or drained, but to really see that you have communities of people, both African-Americans and whites and Jewish, and you have everyone who's trying to fight for civil rights for everyone.
2: So it's more about the struggle and the successes that, that came right. from those?
0: Yeah, and just something as simple as making sure that instead of constantly saying slave and slavery, you know, the trend over the past number of years has been to say enslaved people. As it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a describer of one aspect of a full life uh, to, to see the folks that we're presenting in this book as fully realized human beings. And as Melanie points out, participants and really drivers of um, changing their own community.
1: You know, you present quotes from people that were pro-slavery and people that were mm-hmm. anti-slavery. So there are those two perspectives in the book. Right. Why do you think it was important to include the pro-slavery voice in it as well?
0: I think it's important because I think it helps kids see that that right now is some days history as well. So that means, you know, at that time there were people who, who truly thought this and lived their lives that way and wrote a letter to the editor or printed a broadside that was posted somewhere or as we get later in the book, you know, went on Twitter and said what they thought Mm -hmm. about it. Um, I just want to show them that you need to inform yourself through the sources that are out there. It's important to know that we didn't get everything right the first time, and all good people of conscience always believed this because that makes it, again, that's a little bit disempowering, I think. It makes it seem like, well, of course, we were going to arrive at this place because this is right, and that's where we got to. So I think just presenting that kind of struggle of conscience as we we go – will help them become uh, more effective users of the information.
1: I'm curious, Melanie, do you have anything to add to that?
3: I agree with Amanda in terms of it was really important for us to have the primary source documents. And again, it helps students realize that we all fall into that habit of judging history by today's standards. And so by having the um, letters to the editor and articles and things from that specific time period, they're able to see what people were thinking then. And hopefully, I mean, if you've ever done research, one of the best things in the world is to read all of the old newspapers. You can get caught up for hours doing that. Um, So hopefully it also kind of sparks students' desire to learn a little bit more and to hopefully do some of their own research.
0: That was another great thing about working with Melanie because she had the Missouri History Museum's um, full arsenal and (laughs) LexisNexis connections at her disposal, so she would give me packets of these amazing photocopied editorials, and I spent a lot of time down those wormholes for sure.
2: (laughs) I wanted to ask you um, each more about working together. Did you have any disagreements or differences of opinion along the way, and how did you work those out? I mean, I think, you know, our only was
3: enslaved and slaves and, you know, I'm ready to put enslaved in every sentence. And Amanda's like,
0: yeah, it doesn't
3: fit grammatically there. <laughs> so we need to change that. Um, but no, no no arguments around content or tone or anything.
0: You know, Melanie has a depth of knowledge in this area, and she wrote her dissertation about uh, the history of civil rights, educational progress in St. Louis. So just her, her credentials are impeccable in terms of the content, and that was... Um, made my job really easy.
1: (laughs) Given that was your uh, PhD work, what was it like to then be working on this for a kid's book?
3: It was interesting. I was joking. I wanted to post something like, see, you too can turn your dissertation into a children's book. (laughs) Um, But again, it's like what I said at the beginning. It is so hard to distill an entire chapter on Dred Scott to 250 words. Because you always feel like you're leaving out something and you're like, do they understand the context and what was happening in St. Louis during that time period? And the freed? I mean, we had like a whole top area on freedom suits and it's like we can't do all of that. There was this discussion, do we do an adult book or do we do a children's book? And we really decided on the children's book because we felt that was the audience that was really being missed. I mean, adults search out and read and learn this information, but we need our third and fourth graders to learn and know this information moving forward so they can make very different choices. So I think as you alluded to early, like this information is not out there for this age group. So this was a way for the exhibit to live beyond the exhibit, but also really provide a service to the community. And I think, though, thinking back to one of your earlier questions, one of the areas I think we struggled with the most was the ending because we're so close to it. How do we talk about Ferguson? Right. And because it, 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 we probably started writing this a year and a half after Ferguson, after Michael Brown was killed. And so we're still too close to it to really put it in any type of historical perspective and since that time period, there have been dozens more African-American men shot by the police. And so I think that part was really hard. Like we wanted students to kind of make those connections to the past, but also see that this is a continuing, evolving story. So it doesn't end at the end of the book, but I think I love that you know last sentence, was Ferguson the start of a new civil rights movement or will it become an overlooked moment? The answer
2: remains to be seen. That was Melanie Adams and Amanda Doyle talking about their new children's book, Standing Up for Civil Rights in St. Louis.
1: They hope kids will read the book at home and in their schools. And this has been Cut and Paste, produced by Nancy Fowler
2: and Willis Ryder Arnold,
1: with help from our editor, David Casares.
2: The music you heard is from local music producer, Trifecta. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis Public Radio's
3: podcast series, Cut and Paste, is made possible by space architects, designers, and builders, creating St. Louis's favorite spaces.